0: You are listening to a message from the Living Word Community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Thank you, Ephraim. I'll wait till Carl passes till I take my mask off. I don't want to shock him. (laughs) Thank you Ephraim for that introduction. We are going to continue this morning and maybe into this afternoon, uh, look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, For those of you who heard Ephraim's message last week, it was an excellent, excellent introduction to an incredibly challenging book, uh, possibly one of the most challenging books in all of scripture. Um, Hopefully, if you were not able to hear Ephraim's sermon in person, you were able to catch it on the website, Um, but it was an excellent introduction. And for those of you who have been reading along the corporate Bible reading plan we've been following, you realize that we are coming to an end to Old Testament wisdom literature. We read the book of Proverbs and tried to let the Lord establish for us a, a, a foundation of unshakable wisdom that he gives us. Then we entered into the life and the world of Job and really had things turned sideways as we heard Job and his friends wrestle with almost unbelievably difficult circumstances. And the conclusion to wisdom literature for us has been the book of Ecclesiastes which I feel in some ways is even more challenging and more difficult than the book of Job but remember in Proverbs over and over and over again it said pursue wisdom value wisdom want it more than anything else in this life want it more than gold and silver want it more than any sort of human pursuit," and it was clear that the pursuit of wisdom was going to require something from us, was going to take something from us, demand something from us. And I know for me, the last two weeks of reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, it has demanded something from me. It has taken something from me. And I stand here today in full humility saying, I think there's still a lot of that book that is elusive to me. One of the things in particular that makes Ecclesiastes so challenging is if you listen to what folks who have studied the book and who love the Word of God and love Jesus have to say about it, there is a broad range of interpretations. Two of my favorite teachers on the book of Ecclesiastes, Tremper Longman and Bruce Waltke, I listen to extensive teachings from both of them, and they basically are coming at it from incredibly different places. So it's kind of like, well, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? And so everything that I submit to you today is submitted with incredible humility and is certainly submitted with a full understanding that I need to wrestle even more with the Lord. I need to wrestle even more with challenging passages of Scripture and certainly have not arrived. But the one thing that we want to avoid doing is skipping Ecclesiastes or saying it's too hard or I can't understand it. Or if the believing church, and this is absolutely not an exaggeration, if the believing church for 2,000 years have come up with incredibly different understandings of this book, what hope do I have of getting anything of benefit from it? Well, hopefully, in about 45 minutes, you will say, no, there is an incredible amount of beneficial truth in the book of Ecclesiastes for us. And again, the things that Ephraim emphasized last week, that repeated refrain of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. How do we have a book of the Bible that repeatedly declares that? So if you haven't heard it yet, I strongly encourage you, listen to Ephraim's message. Some of what I say today is going to be very similar to what he has said. Some of what I say today will try to build on the foundation that he laid for us last week. But I know in a conversation with my wife, Ephraim said the same thing how challenged he was the week of his preparation, wrestling and listening and reading and trying to understand. And if you've been reading the book, and hopefully you have, hopefully you have, if you've been following our reading plan, you're reading chapter 11 today, chapter 12 tomorrow, hopefully you have been reading it because it is absolutely part of God's word. It's not the entirety of God's word, but it's part of God's word, and we need to put it in front of ourselves. But let me just pray, and of course, not surprisingly, ask the Lord for wisdom. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for your love, for your mercy, and for the many, many, many ways that you show these things to us, proving yourself time and time and time again. And Father, we are so grateful to you for your word, the clearest revelation to us of who you are and what you have done. And we will never, ever, ever get tired of thanking you for being willing to talk to us, being willing to reveal yourself to us. And Father, we fully acknowledge there are some things that are easier for us to grasp. But for most of us, Father, when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, we encounter a lot of challenges and that doesn't mean that we should skip it or throw our hands up in the air but it means Lord God that we should all the more diligently read it and study it and try to catch your heart in putting it in your eternal word because Father the truth of it is you could have had the words of Ecclesiastes lost to all history but you have carefully preserved and guarded them for your people for all time. It is part of that eternal word that Jesus declared, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so God, give us your wisdom today. Over the last couple of months, we've been challenged to pursue you, to pursue wisdom, to value it, to treasure it. And Ecclesiastes maybe is the most difficult pursuit of wisdom that we have on the pages of the Old Testament. So give us your perspective. Give us your heart. Help us to understand more of what you want to speak to us as your people. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well I want to just give sort of a a summary of the the main characters of the book and then ultimately we are going to read together chapter 9. But for most of you who are reading the book of Ecclesiastes you find that the prominent character of the book is someone who is named the teacher in a lot of your translations or someone who is named the preacher in some of your translations. And this teacher, this preacher, he takes center stage he's introduced to us in chapter 1 verse 1 and he is given no specific name now a lot of folks associate the teacher or the preacher with solomon because he talks about being king in jerusalem he talks about being A son of David and then as Ephraim mentioned last week he talks about pursuing wisdom he talks about pursuing all manners of human pleasure that luxury and wealth could afford but it's interesting because he never explicitly says I am Solomon so that to me is very intriguing and a little bit elusive because if he really is Solomon why not just say he's Solomon Because the Proverbs of Solomon, we know they're from Solomon because it says these are the Proverbs of Solomon. The Song of Songs by Solomon, we know that is the Song of Songs by Solomon because it says this is by Solomon. But it actually never says that the teacher is Solomon. So right off the bat, Ecclesiastes is telling us this is not going to be as easy as we might want it to be. This is not going to be maybe as straightforward as we want it to be. I actually have no idea if the teacher and the preacher is Solomon, or simply is someone who wanted us to relate the teachings of the book to the life experience of Solomon. I think either one is possible, but right off the bat I'm going to tell you I don't know. I don't know. If God absolutely wanted us to know that the author of this book was Solomon, he would have told us. But instead he tells us that these are the words of the teacher, these are the words of the preacher. Now it's interesting because As a young Christian, I had no idea where the title of the book came from, Ecclesiastes. I mean, that's not even a word that I've ever heard of. It's not even a word that I ever use. So how the heck did they come up with that name for one of the books of our Bible? Ecclesiastes. We have trouble saying it. We probably have trouble spelling it. The person who was looking up the passage of Scripture said, well, what's the abbreviation for this book? Obviously, it's a challenging book to try to figure out how to spell in its fullness. Well, where does that name come from? Well, as you may realize, originally, the book of Ecclesiastes was written in Hebrew. And the title of the book in Hebrew is not Ecclesiastes. The title of the book in Hebrew is Kohelet. Kohelet. You are going to learn a Hebrew word today because that Hebrew word is Kohelet. That word that is translated in your Bible as teacher or preacher is actually the Hebrew word Kohelet and it was just a common noun, not used that much, but used on specific occasions. Now the word Kohelet, as Ephraim was referencing last week, the word Kohelet actually comes from the Hebrew word Kahal, and Kahal is an assembly, or a gathering, or in the verbal form, to call an assembly, to call a gathering, to call a meeting. Most of us at some time in our life have been called to a meeting. Well, that is a kahal, or the calling to a meeting is the verbal form kahal. Well, kohelet is the person who presides over an assembly, is the person who presides over a gathering. So throughout the book, in Hebrew, the teacher or the preacher is referred to as kohelet. And today, that's how I'm going to refer to him. Because, yes, he probably was a teacher. He probably was not a preacher. The assembly that was being called in this case, the one that Kohelet was presiding over, was probably some sort of school, school of philosophy, school of wisdom, probably was not uh, a place where someone would be preaching, which we think of as the church. But of course, now you're maybe starting to get some of the dots connected. Because in the New Testament, there's a word, ecclesia. You may be familiar with that. Ekklesia also was a word that meant a gathering, a group, an assembly. It could be a political gathering. It could be a philosophical gathering where the Apostle Paul was preaching in Athens. That would have been an ekklesia, a gathering to hear the latest philosophies of the age. Well, very, very early on, the word ekklesia also took on the meaning of the gathering of followers of Jesus Christ. So usually in the New Testament, when you are reading in your English Bibles the word church, the Greek word ekklesia stands behind it. Well, ekklesia sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes is simply the Greek version of the Hebrew word kohelet. And kohelet is the dominant, dominant voice in this book. He is the dominant voice in this book. But it's important for us to realize, as we study the book of Ecclesiastes, he is not the only voice in this book. There's actually a second voice. And it's very important we distinguish between the two, because the book is introduced describing Kohelet in the third person. So there is a narrator, or there is someone who framed the teachings and the words and the wisdom of Kohelet. He is the voice that we hear at the beginning of the book, and we don't know who he is. He is the voice that we hear at the end of the book, and he is actually addressing his son. He says, my son, be warned of adding to these words that have been put in front of you. So there is a framer, there is a second voice who is recording for us the voice of Kohelet. He is the one that introduces the words of Kohelet to us in the beginning, and he is the word, the voice that concludes the words of Kohelet for us at the end. But it's important that we distinguish between them. The vast majority of the book is the teaching and the wisdom of this person known as Kohelet. But if you look at chapter 1 verse 12, you see that's where we clearly see a transition. Because now it is no longer the framer speaking because now it is Kohelet or the teacher speaking in the first person. I, Kohelet, was king in Jerusalem. So now he is speaking in the first person. But if you jump to the end of the book in chapter 12, you see that the words of Kohelet are being summarized by this second voice. So looking, say, at chapter 12, well, verse 8, the champion verse of this book meaningless meaningless says Kohelet everything is meaningless and Then you say not only was Kohelet wise so you see now Kohelet is being spoken of in the third person It's no longer Kohelet that's speaking. It's this framer. It's this narrator You may remember in the book of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 25 It says these are the Proverbs of Solomon that were collected by King Hezekiah so in other words we fully acknowledge that the way the books of the Bible were put together is very vast. And so it could be that someone else was putting together the form of the book of the Bible that we actually have. That's what's going on here. So you have a, an introductory voice, then at 1.12, absolutely, the voice of the teacher, the voice of Kohelet. His voice probably carries all the way to 12.7, then 12.8, you probably have this summary of the framer, and then you have an evaluation And this is where I want to start before we get to chapter 9. It says Not only was Kohelet wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. Kohelet searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Now, if you've been reading Ecclesiastes, How many of you would say, you know what? The teaching of Ecclesiastes is upright and true. It's just the right words. It's the teaching of an incredibly wise man who shared knowledge with the people. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Humans are no different, no better than animals. Here are the words of someone who is described as a wise man, who imparted knowledge to the people, who looked for just the right words, and ended up writing down words that were righteous and reliable. How many of us, having read the book of Ecclesiastes, would give that summary to the book? So here, to me, is one of the great challenges that is put in front of us. Because as we're reading through the words of Kohelet, I think it's very easy for us to say, wow, that's just not right. That's just not right. And yet, the biblical evaluation of Kohelet's words say that what he said was exactly right. In fact, he looked so hard and he searched so diligently to find that perfect word, to find that perfect wisdom. And in fact, he succeeded and he imparted knowledge to the people. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, that's why for 2,000 years, folks who love Jesus and folks who love the Word of God have wrestled and have struggled and have said, What are we to do with Kohelet? As I referred to earlier, one of my teachers in the Lord is convinced that Kohelet was orthodox is convinced that his declarations were in line with the rest of the teachings of scripture. And you can Google Bruce Waltke and hear an incredibly profound lecture on that. Another one of my teachers, Tremper Longman, is convinced that Kohelet was a pessimistic skeptic, hopeless and ultimately despairing. Well, that's a pretty wide range of understanding. But you can see why. Because the evaluation of Kohelet's words in chapter 12 cannot simply be dismissed. We can't just say, well, you know, that's not really right because Kohelet is despairing. And yet, as we read the words of Kohelet, as we read the book of Ecclesiastes, we certainly get the sense that, man, this guy is is really discouraged and frustrated and is finding no real purpose in life. So what do we do with that? Well, obviously, you realize that I am not in any way going to ultimately resolve this tension. If the church for 2,000 years has not convincingly done it, don't expect me to do it in the next 30 to 35 minutes. But I am going to share with you some of the thoughts that I believe have come from my study of the book. But ultimately, God wants us to continue to pursue him. God wants us to continue to pursue wisdom. You know, if my end of pursuing wisdom is the Sunday that I preach on Ecclesiastes, okay, I'm done, Lord. I figured it all out. What a pathetic waste. But if this is just the beginning, if I'm just actually standing here saying, wow, I'm not sure I really understand some of the deep issues of the book, then I think that's exactly where God wants us to be. Because when does God want us to stop pursuing Him? When does God want us to stop seeking Him? When does God want us to stop understanding Him better? When, when does that incredible adventure and challenge and, 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 and responsibility, when does that end? well it ends when he calls us home because now we do see in part now we do see in a mirror dimly but one day we will see face to face one day we will know him even as we have been known by him but until that day arrives I I would encourage each one of us and us as a church to actively pursue God not thinking that we're ever going to have it all figured out this side of eternity but knowing that we won't But just because we won't doesn't mean we stop pursuing. Just because we won't doesn't mean we throw up our hands in the air and say, well, who can know, why should I bother? No, I think exactly the opposite. I think exactly the opposite, knowing that I will never know perfectly this side of eternity, knowing that I will not understand everything fully this side of God coming, that inspires me to press in even more. That doesn't discourage me and say, well, let me just watch TV instead. That says, no, let me dive in. Let me really wrestle. Don't stop until Jesus comes or he calls you home. But anyways, we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And this is as good a chapter as any. You actually, to me, to preach this message, you probably could have picked any chapter of the book. Ecclesiastes 9 was just the chapter that really kind of was speaking to me as I was reading through this book the last couple of weeks. We're gonna read it in its entirety, and then we're gonna go back and selectively look at some of the things that Kohelet tells us. So again, now these are the words of Kohelet. This is not the word of the framer. This is not the word of the guy who introduces the book, who ends the book. This is the word of the teacher, the preacher, the one who has called the assembly the one who's presiding over the assembly, the one who was wise the one who imparted knowledge to the people, the one who looked for just the right word and then wrote down words that were righteous and trustworthy. These are some of his words. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now in the ancient world the dog was the nastiest, most unclean, most least desirable animal on the planet. Very different for us who have a lot of cute cuddly Fidos as pets, but to understand this, the dog was the worst. So it's better to be a live dog than to be a dead lion because lions obviously, even back then, they were the kings of the animal world. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their their, Their love, their hate, And their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife when you are uh, whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the grave or in Sheol, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish who are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, So men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, And he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man, poor man's wisdom is despised. And his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Well, that's the world of Kohelet. And the title of this sermon is The Vexations of Kohelet. Because we see here and throughout the book a man who is incredibly vexed, a man who is incredibly troubled, a man who is not at all at ease or settled. And chapter 9, like I say, is indicative of the entire book. We really could have read any chapter and we would see into this person's heart. But let me just try to draw a couple of things from what we read. First of all, I think that the book of Ecclesiastes is a devastating commentary on pursuing meaning apart from God. This was the main point that Ephraim brought up last week. The unbelieving world tries to find meaning in their work tries to find meaning in wisdom or education, tries to find meaning in the joys and pleasures of this life. That's what the secular, unbelieving world does. And I believe Ecclesiastes is a devastating apologetic comment against that type of living. But as you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, you realize that Kohelet believes in God, that Kohelet is not an atheist. Kohelet is not an unbeliever. In fact, I started to record all of the passages that mention God, and there's over 20 in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he clearly references God. So this is part of where, again, the challenge comes. Because yes, absolutely, the book of Ecclesiastes devastatingly levels trying to find meaning apart from God. Trying to find meaning in your education, trying to find meaning in your work, trying to find meaning in your relationships, trying to find meaning in the pleasures of this life. If that's where you are looking for ultimate meaning, you will end up disappointed and frustrated. But that's not exactly where Kohelet is coming from because he acknowledges and recognizes and believes in God. Even in the passage that we just read, there's two different times where he references God. Look again at chapter 9, verse 1. He says, and what they do are in God's hands. He is clearly acknowledging that God is sovereign. He's clearly acknowledging that God is in control. Kohelet is not an atheist. Kohelet is not even an agnostic. Kohelet absolutely believes there is a God. And Kohelet absolutely believes that this God is sovereign. He believes that this God is in control. He gives voice to that in chapter 1. Looking again a couple verses later, he mentions God in chapter 9, verse 7. And he says that God shows favor when you do this. So Kohelet acknowledges that not only is God sovereign, not only is God in control, but God gives favor. And for the good things that happen in life, this is a reflection of the favor of God. So it would be easy if we could just say, hey, you know what, Kohelet was just an unbeliever. Kohelet was just a guy that didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in the revelation of God. That would make it easy because then we could evaluate him as we evaluate the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world doesn't believe in God, and because they don't believe in God, they have to try to find meaning somewhere else. But of course, finding meaning in anything apart from God is empty and useless. But again, one of the many challenges that this book puts in front of us is Kohelet believed in God. In fact, you can find him saying that God shows favor to those whom he's pleased with. You can hear him saying that he knows that God will judge everything and God will judge everyone. You can hear him saying it's better to serve God. So you can see why part of the church has believed that Kohelet is orthodox. That they believe that what Kohelet is teaching is actually in line with the rest of Scripture. Because all of those statements, each one of us would say yes and amen to. So one of the first things we see here in chapter 9 that we see throughout the book is Kohelet believed in God. He believed he was sovereign. He believed he gave favor to people. He believed that ultimately he was the judge of all humanity. But we also see other things that Kohelet believed. But we want to make sure that We don't lump him in with the unbelieving world, who doesn't acknowledge God, who doesn't believe in God. But because Kohelet was a wise man, one of the things that wise men would do is they would search, they would seek, they would contemplate, they would reason. And we see over and over and over again that that's what Kohelet did. Over and over again he says, I reasoned in my heart or I thought to myself or I saw a situation or I observed a situation and then I evaluated it and I thought on it and I came up with conclusions from it. We see that repeatedly. We see that repeatedly in chapter 9. Chapter 9 verse 1. So I reflected on all of this. I saw, I reflected, I observed and Chapter 1, or chapter 9, verse 1 actually says he diligently sought. Looking at verse 11, I have seen something else. So again, that observation. So what we see repeatedly Kohelet doing is what wise men would do. They would look at circumstances. They would look at situations. And they would think about them. And they would try to understand them. And they would try to explain them. And they would do this as their pursuit. And so we see Kohelet doing that. But there's a phrase that Ephraim mentioned last week that's absolutely vital to understand what Kohelet saw, what he observed, how he concluded. And that phrase is one that's used, I think, over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that phrase is the phrase, under the sun. In fact, in chapter 9, he uses the phrase under the sun five different times. In verse 3, in verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 11, and verse 13. So what Kohelet is clearly saying, yes, I observed, yes, I reasoned, yes, I considered, yes, I wrestled through with everything that was happening under the sun. So everything that took place on this planet, everything that could be observed. I saw a car accident yesterday. I saw a store get robbed. I saw a person get promoted I saw all sorts of different things. But all of this is what is taking place under the sun. All of this is what is taking place under the sun. So again, some would say that that is the entirety of Kohelet's perspective. And I believe it dominates his perspective. But the problem is, again, as we just said a minute ago, he acknowledges there is a God. And he acknowledges that that God is sovereign. And of course, God is above the sun. God gives above the sun perspective. God gives above the sun reasoning. And so we can't just say Kohelet simply lived under the sun in totality because he saw that there was a God, and he believed in a God. And so we again start to see this tension rise up again. But as Kohelet is describing what he pursued, describing what he saw, it's everything that he saw happening under the sun. Well, what did he see? Well, of course, the book of Ecclesiastes is full of what he saw. But maybe part of why I chose chapter 9 is because of verses 13, 14, and 15. Because Kohelet tells a story. I don't know if it's a real story or if it's just a made-up parable story. But there was a fairly small city. And it came about that that very small city was being besieged by an army, much more powerful, much more mighty than anything that city could muster. So it certainly looked that that city was doomed there was no way this city was going to survive. But in that city, there was a poor man. But this poor man was very wise. And it doesn't say how, but it says that this poor man, with his wisdom, was able to save this city, was able to save this small little group of people who was absolutely doomed to be besieged and conquered and destroyed by this invading army, yet somehow, This poor man, with his wisdom, was able to save the city. So one of the things that we see Kohelet talking about regularly, what did he observe, what did he see, what did he take notice of? Well, over and over and over again, what he saw was that life can be unpredictable. That life often doesn't turn out the way that you think it will. And Kohelet meditates on this constantly. And if you've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes, you've been seeing that. So many times, things don't work out the way that you would expect. A car is racing down 17th Street, going 60 miles an hour, runs the red light at Ben Franklin Parkway, and he doesn't get in an accident. That's crazy. And so Kohelet saw over and over and over again how often life was unpredictable, how what you would expect to happen was exactly what didn't happen. You have a small city being besieged by a great army. You expect that city to be overrun, and usually it is. But sometimes, from the least likely source, Salvation and deliverance comes. And in this case, it was from a poor man who was incredibly wise. He was able to save the city. So one of the things that Kohelet constantly observed was the unpredictability of life. Look now at verse 11, because this is one of the clearest statements in all of the book of how unpredictable life can be. I have seen something else under the sun. Again, what does experience show him? What has he seen take place in the life that he has lived? The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. This is one of the most amazing declarations by Kohelet that life doesn't turn out the way you think it would. The fastest runner doesn't win the race. The wise person doesn't get the food. Things don't turn out the way that you expect them to. But Kohelet adds another layer to that. Because he says, oftentimes, what is unexpected is that injustice prevails. Injustice prevails. So you can hear Kohelet saying, I saw the righteous Excuse me, I saw the wicked in the place where the righteous should dwell. I saw injustice in the place where justice should prevail. I saw the wicked getting what the righteous deserve. And I saw the righteous getting what the wicked deserve. So the unpredictability of things that take place in this life, for Kohelet, they were not neutral. Sometimes, yes, they were neutral. Just things didn't work out the way that I thought. There was a super stormy cloud. It looked like it was going to rain. It didn't rain. But Kohelet takes it one step further, and he said, so much of the unpredictability of this life that I saw is injustice, is injustice. The world that Kohelet observed The world that Kohelet thought on was full of injustice. The righteous were getting what the wicked deserved, and the wicked were getting what the righteous deserved. There were wicked men that were living long lives. There were righteous men who were having their lives cut short. So it wasn't just neutral unpredictability that circumstance and life experience threw at Kohelet. It was injustice. And he saw it repeatedly over and over and over again. And so as a wise man, as a philosopher, as a thinker, what did Kohelet do? He tried to understand this. He tried to understand this. Now look at the tension that Kohelet has. Because if you're simply an atheist evolutionist, hey, bad things happen because, you know, that's just the way the DNA came together in the primordial soup some two billion years ago. You know, the atheist has it easy. Life can be unpredictable, life can be unjust, and yeah, who cares? It's just the way it goes. Some people are incredibly successful and some people are not. Some people are wicked and get away with it. Some people are righteous and get punished. But hey, that's just the chance of evolution. You see, so that would make it very easy to understand Kohelet. The problem with Kohelet is he believes in God. He believes in God. He knows that God is sovereign. He knows that God is going to judge. He knows that God is in control. He knows there's such a thing as the favor of God. These are all things that Kohelet speaks about. So the problem that Kohelet has is he wants to understand if there is a sovereign God, if there is a God who's going to judge, if there is a God who grants favor, why is there so much injustice? Why is there so much unpredictability? Why don't things work out the way I think they should? This is the vexation of Kohelet. You see, if he were an atheist, it'd be so easy. But he wasn't. He was a man who believed in God. He was a man who believed in the justice of God. He was a man who believed in the sovereignty of God. And he saw so much in his life experience that didn't agree with that. And so he sought to understand this. He sought to understand this. And I think at this point, his wisdom trips him up. His wisdom trips him up because he said, I sought to understand this. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, it's a heavy burden. It's a heavy burden that God has laid on humanity to try to understand that he is there and yet so much injustice prevails. And look at what Kohelet ultimately concludes as he endeavors to understand the injustice, the unpredictability of life if there is a God. Chapter 9, verse 1. It says, so I reflected on all of this and concluded that righteous, the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows. He actually says no one can know. No one can know what's coming. Is love coming your way or is hatred coming your way? Kohelet says, you just can't know. He's one of the wisest, sharpest tacks that ever lived. Maybe it was Solomon. Maybe it was someone who just wanted us to associate him with Solomon. But he sought and he pursued. He dedicated his life to understanding these things. And what's his great conclusion? No one can know. Look at verse 12. Moreover, no one knows when his time will come. So one of the wisest people that ever lived Whether Kohelet and Solomon are one of the same, whether Kohelet is just wanting us to associate him with Solomon, it doesn't really matter, because ultimately what he says is, you just can't know. And imagine if you're supposed to be one of the wisest guys around. If you're supposed to be one of the ones that everyone looks to, the teacher, the preacher, the counselor, the source, and your ultimate conclusion is, nobody can know. Nobody can know. And I think that really started to jade and lead to disillusionment. Kohalit. So what does he conclude? Well, in, a, 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 a different, in in many different places, he says something very similar to what he says in chapter 9, verses 7 to 12. Excuse me, 7 to 10. Basically, what he says is, look, there's nothing better for you to do then just enjoy this life as much as you can. Because you don't know what's coming, because you ultimately cannot make sense of this life, just enjoy the good things that come your way as much as you can. So looking at verses 7 to 10, enjoy a good meal. Enjoy a good glass of wine. Enjoy your wife that you love. Celebrate. White clothes were always a sign of celebration. Anoint your head with oil, something that you would do if you were getting ready to celebrate. If you were getting ready, you know, that's like putting on your perfume or putting on, you know, your your nice stuff. And Kohelet just says, hey, look, this is the best you can do because life is so unpredictable, because life is so unjust, and because ultimately no one can truly understand this. When God gives you something good, when God sends something your way that's pleasant, just enjoy it as fully as you can. Enjoy wisdom, enjoy hard work, work diligently what your hand puts to do. Because you know what, you're going to Sheol, you're going to the grave. And once you're there, this all ends. So that's Kohelet's conclusion, is just enjoy this life as much as you can. Because these things are actually gifts from God. He acknowledges that. Being able to enjoy a good meal, being able to enjoy a fun time with friends, being able to work hard and feel the satisfaction of hard work. See, Kohelet actually acknowledges this is a good gift from God. But you can't really know much more than that. So now we've looked a little bit at chapter 9. Well, how are these words considered to be the words of a wise man? How are they actually imparting knowledge to the people? How are these words to be deemed as trustworthy and reliable and just the right word? Well, let's look and review some of the things that Kohela taught God is sovereign. Yeah, he is. God is in control. Yeah. He is. God is going to judge everything. Yeah, he will. This life is totally unpredictable. Yeah, it really is. This life can be incredibly unjust. Yeah, it is. Humans can never fully understand everything that's going on in this universe. Yeah, that sounds absolutely right to me. And ultimately, there are good things that God gives you to enjoy in this life. Yeah. There are. So you can see how actually there's a lot that reinforces the evaluation of Kohelet's words from chapter 12. All of that is true. All of that is right. All of that is trustworthy. All of that is reliable. All of that is stuff that we can absolutely build a solid foundation upon. Kohelet really was a wise man. Kohelet really did impart knowledge to the people. Kohelet really did put forth and write down words that are trustworthy and reliable. But unfortunately for Kohelet, it didn't end there. Because I think, as I said earlier, I think this is where his wisdom ultimately tripped him up. Because he thought he knew how things should work out, and so oftentimes they didn't work out that way. And he never could resolve that. He never could resolve that. The injustices of this life, the unpredictability of this life, and ultimately the inability of any human, no matter how wise they are, to ever fully understand everything that happens in this life. Can you ever completely explain why a 13-year-old Who loves Jesus? dies of cancer? I think this drove Kohelet crazy because he couldn't understand that. Can you ever fully understand why some of the nastiest guys on this planet live to see 90? Live to see 100? No. No. I think the wisdom of Kohelet ultimately tripped him up because I think he felt like he had to come up with an answer and he couldn't. And he didn't. So he did end up, and I think, a place of frustration and ultimately despair. So looking at the true things that Kohelet said, I think each one of us have a choice to make. There are good things in this life. Watching a great movie, having dinner with friends, enjoying a walk in God's beautiful creation. These are good things that God has given us. Now. You can enjoy them in their proper place. You can say, wow, God gave me a beautiful sunset. Wow, God blessed me with an amazing apartment. Wow, God gave me a promotion at work. You can enjoy them in their proper place. Or you can choose what Kohelet chose. Use those things to drown out the pain and misery of this life, which is what the unbelieving world does or try to find ultimate meaning in these things, which again is what the unbelieving world does. So what is true? God does give us things to enjoy in this life. God does give us things that are pleasant in this life. But what will you do with that? Will you put them in their proper place and acknowledge that these are temporary blessings from God's hand? Or will you try to find ultimate meaning in them? Second thing, Kohelet said, look, God is in control. God is in control. Will you rejoice in that? Will you trust God? Will you absolutely acknowledge and, as we heard earlier, submit to him? Or will you let the fact that God is in control lead you to frustration? God, if you are in control, then why? Why do just people die and wicked people live? Why do just people get punished and wicked people get away with it? God is in control, but what will you do with that? Will you end up frustrated? Or will you simply acknowledge that God knows what he's doing? Remember when God answered Job. You know, the one thing that the Lord never told Job is what had taken place in Job chapters 1 and 2. Never told him. Never told him. He just said, Job, I'm God, you're not. And Job said, yeah, you know what, you're right. And I opened my mouth once, but now I'm going to shut up. Because you're God and I'm not. Knowing that God is in control, will that give you incredible peace and comfort and confidence? Or will it lead you to frustration and despair? Very similar to that. Knowing that life is unfair, knowing that life is unjust, knowing that things don't always work out the way you think they should. Same choice. Will you trust the God that is in control? Or will you say, man, it should have been a different way? That guy who ran the red light, he should have gotten a ticket, and I can't believe he didn't. Will you let that bitterness and that despair and that frustration start to take root in your heart? I believe that's where Kohelet started to go and maybe even ended up. Some of the words of Kohelet are incredibly dark and incredibly despairing. And I believe he felt like God owed him an explanation. I believe he felt like he had to understand why there was injustice in this life. So will you let that frustration and that despair and that bitterness start to take root in your heart? Look, there is going to be injustice in this life. There will. There are going to be things that are unfair. There will. But will you acknowledge there's a good God who's in control? Or will you just end up angry and disappointed? And finally, I think absolutely the most important, the finiteness of our understanding. How limited we are. Will we shake an angry fist at God and say, God, you should have. God, why didn't you? Or like Kohelet, will we say, what's the point? Be wise, be wicked. Ultimately, the same fate awaits you. You're no better than an animal. You're just going to end up in the dirt anyways. Or will we say, you know what, God? I don't have it all figured out. I can't explain everything that happens. There are so many things that are beyond me. There are so many things that are mysterious to me. There's so many things that are elusive to me. And I'm not going to feel obligated to be you. I'm not going to feel obligated to try to have a perfect answer for every hard question. I'm going to accept my limitations. I'm going to accept my finiteness. I'm going to accept that I'm a creature and you're the creator. I'm going to accept I'm very small and you're very big. I'm going to accept I only see a pinprick and you see the whole galaxy. I'm going to accept that. I'm not going to lead that to me putting you on trial. I'm not going to let that lead to me saying, God, you owe me something. I'm going to say, wow, God, I'm really small. I'm really tiny. I'm really limited. So Kohelet spoke a lot of truth. He did. He got a lot of things absolutely right. His words were the words of a wise man. His words were trustworthy and reliable. But you know, he let them take him to a place that we don't ever want to go. Frustration, despair, disillusionment, giving up. You know, the Apostle Paul, and we're going to end with this. The Apostle Paul also acknowledged that the wisdom of God was infinitely beyond him. I think we could all say probably one of the wisest men that's ever lived, one of the men that probably knew the heart of God as well as anyone that has ever lived was the Apostle Paul. And yet the Apostle Paul was always so happy to say, gosh, what am I compared to the Lord? The end of Romans chapter 11 is one of the most amazing declarations of how small and finite we are and how infinitely wise God is. Romans chapter 11, the last couple of verses. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Where is Paul quoting from? He's quoting from Job. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for the words of Kohelet that you have preserved for us. And Lord, they're not easy. I think all of us have been incredibly stretched and challenged by what we read in this book. But yet, Lord, there was so much that is so true that he clearly spoke about. And we need to have incredibly high regard for the truth that he spoke. And yet there were things, God, that were beyond and that ultimately tripped him up. And I pray, Father, that we would fully recognize that you are infinitely beyond us that your wisdom makes us look like idiots, that your understanding makes us look like fools. It says the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of humanity, and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of humanity. May we always fully understand, Lord, that you are the only one who sees it all and knows it all and understands it all. This life will be full of injustice. This life will be full of unpredictable circumstances. It won't always go the way we want. It won't always go the way we think it should. But at that moment, God, will we trust you? Will we trust you? Not ourselves. Not our ability to figure everything out. Not our ability to know everything. But will we trust you? And finally, Father, as we trust you in those hard and difficult circumstances of life, will we worship you? Will we worship you? Give us the grace to do that. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen.